Hello and welcome to Team Geist. We're your hosts, Jonathan Latimer and Karan Tejwani. Today we're joined by Portuguese football journalist Tom Kundert to discuss Sporting CP's incredible season. Tom is the creator of Portugal and the co-author of the 13th chapter, a book looking at Portugal's rise to becoming European champions in 2016. With Tom, we'll be discussing Sporting's unbeaten season, key players like Pedro Gonçalves and Sebastian Quartes, the struggles of their rivals Porto and Benfica, and lots more. Sporting have been impressive this season, sitting on top of the league and looking likely to end a 19-year title drought. They're unbeaten in the league so far, and the title could be wrapped up soon. Tom, what's made them so great? It's a simple question. Perhaps the answer isn't quite so simple. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's been a, a huge surprise for any everybody in Portugal. Nobody's really saw this coming. Uh, you know, we're talking about a team here that hasn't won the league for. 19 years since 2002 uh, at the start of the season Benfica invested 100 million euros which is absolutely unheard of in Portugal uh, and of course uh, Jorge Jesus had come back uh, he had been very successful at Benfica in a previous spell so they were immediately installed as strong favourites to win the league uh, Porto were the champions they'd done a double last season and uh, and Sporting were, you know, uh, kind of starting afresh as uh, they seem to have to do every single season. Uh, but uh, this season, it's just been completely different. Uh, why? I think we have to give almost all the credit or a huge uh, chunk of the credit to their coach, Ruben Amarine, who implemented uh, his system. He's a, a, you know, a staunch believer in his tactical system, 3-4-3, and he kind of handpicked players to fit that system. Uh, so he brought in really a you could say a, a host of players who weren't at all big names, uh, some of them almost unheard of, uh, and uh, got this team together, you know, uh, with the few ingredients of, uh, you know, a few youth players uh, from Portugal, uh, from Sporting's uh, famous Alcachet Academy, which had been neglected over recent years, but uh, uh, Ruben Amarine has made good use of that. And it's uh, it's kind of resulted in this, incredible uh, alchemy of a extremely cohesive team uh, very strong defensively especially and uh, and just uh, winning uh, you know uh, kind of uh, week after week after week uh, against all expectations building up a, a huge lead at the top of the table uh, you know 10 points ahead of their nearest rivals Porto with 11 games left. And so, uh, you know, very well placed to end their long spell without a championship triumph. They faced major issues of the club recently. They've had a poor financial situation last year and the fans even held a protest in 2018 that made many of their top players want to leave. What's changed since? Yeah, well, it's amazing, you know, how much is down to results, you know, the whole kind of feeling around the club and, uh, you know, because... You ask what's changed. Uh, not an awful lot, to be honest. Well, in, in some ways, not an awful lot. And in other ways, a, a huge amount. Because uh, in terms of, you know, the results, these results are just uh, absolutely unheard of, as I said, for really decades at Sporting. 
but why has it come about? It's almost come about out of nothing. You know, we just, like I said before, we have to give huge credit to uh, Ruben Namarine. The big problem with sporting in recent seasons has been just a kind of chronic instability running right through the club from, you know, changing the coach virtually every every season, sometimes more than once a season. Uh, you know, lots of controversy in the boardroom. Uh, we had the, of course, very... Um, we could say belligerent presidency of uh, Bruno de Carvalho, which uh, although he did some good work, uh, a lot of good work, actually, I think uh, most sporting fans will work. He was kind of a real firebrand president and he just was ended up being a bit too unstable, you know, and for a club, which has kind of naturally been unstable. Uh, it just, uh, it just didn't work out in the end. Uh, the new president came in, not at all unanimously, uh, you know, taking over he's got a lot of critics even as recently as last season lots of people saying you know he doesn't know what he's doing a uh, very different character to Bruno de Carvalho uh, brought in lots of transfers last season which just were almost universally uh, disastrous you know just flop after flop uh, as I said changing the coach I think Sporting had four coaches last season if you include the uh, you know the interim coaches so you can't really say that you know Sporting have slowly been building uh, you know steadily towards this it just kind of uh, it just kind of happened uh, and like I said I think Ruben Amory deserves uh, you know, so much of the credit because he's the one who's handpicked the players to fit his system. And so, uh, you know, and as, as always happens at football clubs, uh, and amazingly or magically, you know, all the opposition, this huge opposition, which come from within the club, uh, especially has kind of just dissipated as the results have, uh, you know, dictated that everyone's pretty happy with the situation at the moment. The president, Federico Brandes, is a bit of a hero in these parts, isn't he? Not only did he fix the club's finances, he was also effective during lockdown when he was a doctor. What's his status in Lisbon like? Yeah, it's an interesting character. You know, I'd say he's a, like you said, he's got a very impressive CV uh, as a kind of, you know, just well-rounded person because he's, uh, like you said, he's a doctor. He's actually, he's also served in the Portuguese army. He, uh, he, he, he went on a mission uh, with the UN, I think, to Afghanistan, was there for some time, uh, you know, during the COVID-19, uh, which Portugal, you know, just like everywhere, has, has suffered with badly uh, at, at some points during this, uh, you know, during the pandemic. He's uh, kind of gone back to uh, practicing in medicine, you know, helping out uh, in, in hospitals. And so, yeah, from that point of view, there's no doubt about it. He's, uh, you know, he's proved to be somebody who has, uh, you know, it's just, just proved to be, you know, a, a really good citizen, uh, in, in, I suppose, before anything else. In terms of his presidency, he is, I wouldn't say he's unanimously loved by sporting fans. <laughs> I think that would be uh, a stretch because uh, his uh, first of all, Sporting's previous president was such a divisive character, Bruno de Carvalho, but he does retain quite a lot of support, you know, quite a lot of support among quite a big, uh, you know, quite a big proportion of Sporting fans. And of course, he ended up uh, having, he was, he, he ended up having quite a big fallout with uh, Bruno de Ferrando, with uh, Federico Fernandes, who they worked together in the previous uh, regime. But, uh, 
and uh, you know they they just don't see eye to eye at all at the moment. So that that caused a bit of friction. And like I said last season as well, people whatever they thought about Frederico Verandas the man, and I think you know there's a lot to admire in him. Like we just mentioned, uh, they thought perhaps he wasn't really suited to being the president of a you know, such a big institution and such a historic institution as, as sporting. But, uh, you know, fair play to him. I think like all presidents of, uh, you know, huge institutions or big or small institutions, that I suppose one of the main things, one of your main uh, responsibilities and what kind of dictates dictates whether you're successful or not is the people you choose, isn't it? Isn't it the people who choose to be part of your team, people who... You you know put in position to to influence how the organisation uh, you know the, the fortunes of the of the of the organisation going forwards and he's certainly got got it right it seems. Veranda has mentioned that selling Bruno Fernandes when they sold him was a stroke of luck because they wouldn't have been able to command the same fee in a pandemic-hit world. How much did that sale help? You know, there's no doubt about it. It must have helped the club a lot because it was such a big sale. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, but the finances, this this hasn't really, this, this resurgence of sporting hasn't really been built on spending big. And so I think the sale of Bruno Fernandes was absolutely necessary more uh, out of a question just of balancing the books, you know, and trying to keep the, keep the club's head above water more than, uh, you know, trying to, you know, generate funds to, to build, a, build a brand new team. I mean, this team, um, I mentioned before, Benfica have spent 100 million euros in, uh, in reinforcements. That's, of course, that's very unusual in Portugal, even, even for Benfica. But, uh, but if you compare that to sporting, you know, sporting have really just spent absolute peanuts. You know, they've, they've, uh, they spent about 5 million each on, on f- their three most expensive signings, five or 6 million, which was, uh, you know, Pedro Gonçalves, Nuno Santos and Bruno Tabata, the three players brought in from slightly smaller Portuguese clubs. And then they just uh, brought in, you know, it's more being clever signings, targeted signings, uh, <laughs> players like uh, Fidel from uh, from Spain, uh, Real Betis, I think it, that they got him from, and then uh, the, the goalkeeper Antonio Adan also uh, from Spain, you know, but uh, they were they were very cheap or even free transfers. I think Adan was a free transfer, and uh, and so really, you know, it. The, the money side of it, that the sale of Bruno Fernandes uh, was more a question of just, uh, you know, trying to keep the club on an even keel financially, but didn't really have much effect on the ability to, uh, you know, bring in expensive, uh, you know, expensive new signings. Ruben Amarim is a widely touted manager these days. Can you explain a little more about his tactical approach? His philosophy is kind of set in stone. He plays 3-4-3. So it's uh, three defenders at the back and then two wing, wing backs. And so uh, it's, it's funny because 3-4-3, I'd always kind of thought of it as quite an attacking system. Uh, you know, just the fact people say, oh, you know, just three defenders. But of course, 
it really depends how it's how it's used because that three defenders uh, without the ball, you know, usually turns into five defenders. And in Sporting's case this season, it's actually been quite a defensive system, and I think that's been, uh, you know, perhaps one of the keys behind their success there. Uh, well, not not perhaps without a doubt, it's been one of the keys behind their success. They've been incredibly strong defensively. They've only conceded eleven goals in twenty three games. You know, that's that the, their defensive record. I think it's it's about half the number of goals which the next best defense has conceded. And uh, you know, so many clean sheets. So basically, they know that you know if they score one goal, uh, they've got a very good chance of winning the game. And uh, and and of course, they haven't lost at all in 23 games, and that that's the key, isn't it? That's the key because they just haven't conceded. So those, uh, so uh, it's three four three, like I say, with uh, these these defenders who you wouldn't really put down as as world beaters, just forming a really strong uh, base to decide. You know, Sebastian Coates, especially the, the, the central, central, central defender uh, and club captain, he's just been absolutely outstanding this season. And then in front of him, you've got Joao Palinha, who is just uh, at the base of midfield. He's just been called up by the Portugal squad. He's also had an outstanding season. And I think two of the key players in this success for, Portugal, uh, for sporting have being the wing-backs, uh, Nuno Mendes, brilliant young talent, set for a glittering career without a doubt. And on the other side, uh, Pedro Porro, a uh, young Spanish uh, uh, right wing-back who came on loan from uh, Manchester City. So, and, and both of those are really, uh, you know, really strong, both defensively and uh, helping out in, the, in, the, in attacking terms. And so that's just really given Sporting, uh, you know, the, their whole... Uh, success this season, without a doubt, is built on a really strong defence. You know, they say, don't they, defences win championships, attacks win games. And that's certainly been the case or appears to be the case with Sporting this season. Because uh, it's, it's really the defensive solidity which has given them the platform to, to go on. And then I suppose we can't uh, neglect to talk about uh, Pedro Gonçalves. You know, he's just proved to be a fantastic buy. Uh, I mean, Sporting's attack this season... Uh, well, in terms of their central striker, you know, how can you be 10 points clear when basically they haven't had a central striker? You know, I don't mean to be rude to uh, Thiago Tomás, who has played, he's another one of these youth players who's, who's done very well this season. I think he's, he's also got a big future ahead. But, you know, he's 18 years old. He's still, he still really should be playing in, in the youth ranks and he's been thrust into the first team because uh, Sporting really haven't had any alternatives and he's done pretty well, you know, he's... But he's only scored, I think, three league goals, six goals in all in all competitions, and then Sporting did actually splash the cash in uh, in the January transfer window to bring in Paulinho. Now that is a top class player, and they had to pay big money for him. Uh, certainly by Sporting standards, uh, it's cost sixteen million to start with. Uh, with add-ons, it could be over twenty million. Uh, but he, unfortunately for Sporting, he got injured almost immediately, so he's only played a couple of games and he's been out. Uh, he's been out ever since. You know, Sporting signed him so uh, and, and part of that deal was taking Sporting's only other striker uh, Sporar up, up to Braga uh, as part of the deal you know and so Sporting have basically played virtually without a recognised striker and the man who's they've relied on more than anyone to get these goals is Pedro Gonçalves who's 
kind of just filled the Bruno Fernandes-shaped hole in midfield and has been scoring goals galore. He's, he's actually top scorer in Portugal, although he's not a striker. He's an attacking midfielder, scored 15 goals and, uh, you know, none of them penalties. So he's been an absolute revelation. So, uh, so yeah, that's it. You know, three, four, three sporting play doesn't matter who the opposition is if it's the strongest team in Portugal if it's the weakest team in Portugal they still use that system and I think that's also been one of the secrets why it's been so successful because it's really the system which works not individual players so when an injury comes along, when a suspension comes along, one player goes out, another player comes in. System's exactly the same. Everyone knows what they're doing. You know, it's just working like pretty smoothly old machine. We've seen in recent weeks that they've looked a bit predictable and opposition teams are able to nullify them. But Sporting are still able to get results. What's brought about this change in mentality? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, definitely a fair point. Last four or five games, I think Sporting really haven't played that well and they've struggled. But, you know, in those four or five games, they've, uh, well, last five games, for instance, they've won four, drawn one. And the, the one they drew was a way at, uh, Porto so you know that's obviously a good result so uh, so 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 yeah the word you use there is really the key word mentality this is something which really sets this sporting team uh, aside from from previous sporting teams they they have such a strong mentality a real uh, a real kind of feeling of togetherness which I think also we have to give Amarine uh, a lot of credit for that. He's kind of uh, built that within the team. And they've actually got a kind of slogan, which uh, came about after a, a controversial draw back in earlier in the season, November, December, when they played against Family Cal away, drew that game 2-2, but they were quite angry uh, at the end, sporting were with, with the officials because... Uh, they had a player controversially sent off and then Sporting scored a last second winner or they thought they had and then that was ruled out by by VAR. And so they thought they got a bit of a raw deal by the officials. And uh, I think that was the very weekend where uh, Amarine first mentioned in his post-match, post-match press conference this, this kind of motto, which is uh, on the violin, which means... Uh, where one goes, everybody goes, you know, sort of everyone pushing in the, in, in the same direction. And that's really kind of uh, caught the imagination of, of, of the players, uh, of the fans. You know, you see that hashtag everywhere among sporting fans, uh, among the players, you know, it's mentioned in post-match interviews, pre-match interviews as well. So, and you've got to remember, none of these players have really experienced success in their in their careers in terms of, uh, you know, winning leagues, uh, winning important trophies, you know, even the more experienced ones. And so I think, you know, all of that, that they've got together, they've obviously a, a fantastic spirit has been built within the club. They realised that they could be, you know, about to do something special. And, uh, and yeah, the, the mentality just really seems to be spot on. You know, everyone's working towards this goal. Amarim is still just 36 years old and should have a long future in the game. How far do you think he can go in management? Well, he's got an incredible record so far. I think we have to be a bit careful, of course, because 
he has got an incredible record. Uh, you know, he's, he's doing what he's doing here at Sporting and previously at Braga. The reason Sporting got him in the first place was because of his spell at Braga, which was only a couple of months, but that was really similarly sensational. Uh, he, I think he had 14 games and won 12 or something like that. He, uh, and in those 12 games, he'd beat, you know, at Braga, this was, he'd beat Sporting twice, he beat Porto twice, he beat Benfica, won the, the Tassa de Liga, uh, the Portuguese League Cup. And so he, he had an incredible uh, impact there. And then he came to Sporting, uh, tail end of last season, uh, a little bit up and down the results, you know, not quite so spectacular. And then this season came along, I suppose he would argue that this is the first season at Sporting where this is his team, you know, his hand-picked, hand-selected team. And the results, again, have been absolutely spectacular. So, yeah, you know, first indications are it could really be the, the next big thing in, in Portuguese uh, coaching terms. I've, like I say, I think we had to be a bit careful because I remember, for example, uh, Bruno Lage, when he first took over at uh, Benfica, he also had a, a, you know, that was another young coach who, uh, you know, seemed to be bringing these new ideas, these bright ideas. He had a fantastic impact there. They clawed back a, a seven-point deficit to Porto to win the league under under Lage uh, when he had uh, just really half a season to work with. And it looked like he was, you know, he, he'd just been brought in for the, for the next season, but he did so well. He won the league there and uh, and, and also started the, the following season really well. And again, people were saying, wow, you know, look at this, uh, the next Mourinho. And, uh, but then it all went a bit pear-shaped for him. It all went wrong. He ended up getting sacked. He hasn't been w- working at all, I don't think, since since he did get the sack about a year ago. So, you know, it's a bit too early to anoint uh, Amarine as, as the new Mourinho or anything like that. But, you know, no doubt about it so far, everything he's done seems to have, uh, you know, has been has kind of turned to gold. So it's just a question of whether he can maintain that. In the transfer window, Sporting went for more players who have experience of playing domestic football in Portugal. Was that a major key to their success? Yeah, I think that, I think this has been a key. And I think that's, it's, it's it's quite unusual, you know, uh, Josh. It's quite surprising that uh, it's quite unusual for the big clubs in Portugal. Uh, so we're talking here about uh, Porto, about Benfica, about Sporting. It's quite unusual for them to go and buy players, good performers, from the, the kind of lesser lights in Portugal. I think I was talking about this the other day. There's a, a, there's a little bit of a snobbishness even or a feeling that, you know, we're kind of above uh, that. You know, we're kind of above your station or, you know, we go shopping at, uh, you know, more kind of prestigious places. Uh, it's uh, that they're more likely maybe to go to a, a foreign club or to South America, bring in, a, you know, somebody who's who's got a little bit of a name for themselves. And quite often clubs, uh, teams, uh, sorry, quite often players who really do excel in Portugal at these smaller clubs uh, aren't bought by one of the big three in in Portugal, they go abroad and they do very well. And then people are kind of left scratching their heads saying, you know, you know, why did we, why didn't we do, why didn't we go in for that player? And that really has, has changed this season for sporting and even the Porto to some degree, they've done this more than they usually have done. You know, they've brought in, for instance, Mehdi Taremi, who's, who did fantastically at, at Rio Ava last season and is doing brilliantly now at, 
at Porto, the, the right-back also, Manafa, and the left-backs are here. They're all doing really well. And at Sporting, uh, yeah, those three players, uh, you know, well, especially two of them, I'd say Nuno Santos at Rio Ave, uh, and uh, and Pedro Gonçalves, of course, from uh, from from Malikão. Uh, they've they've proved absolutely brilliant signings, and you do, of course, have this big advantage, which is they know the league. You know, they know the players. They know the the kind of obstacles they've got to go past. They don't. There's no question about uh, you know adaptation. Uh, they're they're Portuguese players. You know, in 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 the case of the, the players uh, sporting board, well. Uh, the third player they bought, Bruno Tabata, he's Brazilian, but he's been here for, for a long time. And also Brazilians, of course, they, they find it very adapt, uh, very easy to adapt to Portugal. Uh, and so, yeah, the uh, yeah, so I think that has been definitely uh, you know, a key factor. And it, it wouldn't actually surprise me, given the success of these players at Sporting, given the success of those, uh, you know, a few of those that I mentioned at Porto, and also because of the, you know, just the global situation, the pandemic and the fact that Portuguese clubs seems to have less and less money. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if this is a little bit of a turning point in, in, in terms of uh, transfers. And I think we're more likely to see much more, many more uh, internal transfers in the coming seasons than uh, perhaps, uh, you know, in the past. Their defence has been incredible this season and Sebastian Quartes, who used to be a bit of a figure of ridicule in England, has been excellent. What's behind their great form at the back and how much has Quartes improved them? Yeah, he's always been very popular among sporting fans because, you know, it's one of these players he always gives... You know, he's all, you can tell, you know, a real kind of fan favourite, always gives 110%. But, uh, yeah, his form has been up and down and he has been, you know, he has had spells where he's been, you know, you could almost say a liability because uh, he's, uh, you know, scored, he tends to score quite a few own goals. Uh, Also, his disciplinary record isn't that good. You know, you get, I remember few games last season, there's one game which stands out against Rio Ave when he, he gave away three penalties and got sent off. <laughs> Absolute disaster from start to finish. And I think he scored an own goal a week before and an own goal a week after or something like that, or when he came back from suspension. So he really just was having a, a, a terrible time of it. But like I say, he is uh, he is popular because of, you know, you can see that, he, you know, he, he, he gives it his all every game. And he's one of these players who has really benefited from the change in system because his problem really, Sebastian Coatz, in terms of his playing attributes is, uh, you know, he's, he's got a lot of very good attributes. He's brilliant in the air, really strong. I think when he came to Portugal, he was the tallest outfield player in Portugal. I'm not sure if that's still the case. I think only when Bazdos came, he, yeah, you know, he kind of knocked him off that perch for a while. But of course, Bazdos is no longer here. So perhaps he's, again, the tallest outfield player in Portugal. And he uses that height to great advantage. He's a real threat in the air uh, at Sporting's attacking set pieces and is brilliant at defending, of course, anything in the box. Uh, but his big problem in terms of his attributes or lack of attributes is his lack of pace. You know, he's very slow and it's, it's quite easy to turn. And of course, in Portugal, there's lots of, uh, you know, skillful, speedy players. And, uh, you know, if they ran at Coats uh, or turned him anywhere near the box, then he, he'd be in trouble. But with this system, this three-man defence, and then you've got the the, the fullbacks who are both uh, very speedy players. Uh, they, you know, that they can help him out in that situation. Or, but 
you know, even even though I, they haven't really had to help him out that much because it's just so solid. Sport, sporting have been giving away a ridiculously few number of chances uh, per game. You know, the opposition uh, teams have normally had, uh, you know, even the even the big teams when they play Porto and and uh, Benfica, you know, they give up like one or two chances a game. Uh, they've just been so solid and. Uh, and Coats has definitely benefited from you know being the boss of that defence and having and uh, knowing exactly you know where to do his experience. Of course, I think he's thirty years old already. Of course, played at Liverpool, played in England, and so you know he's got he's got a lot of minutes and he's got a lot of know-how in you know in that mind of his, and I suppose just in, in that football brain of his, and I suppose confidence of course you know he, there's no doubt about it when when he was having those problems that you know his, his confidence would definitely have been not but now uh, it's the opposite you know everyone's showering with praise showering him with praise and uh and justifiably so uh because he's been a real leader uh, you know on the pitch and off the pitch Pedro Gonçalves has been one of their stars this season and a widely touted figure around Portugal and European football. Can you explain a little bit more about his rise over the last couple of months? Yeah, so he did really well last season, but, you know, I don't think anyone expected this to happen. You know, I don't think anyone expected him to be this good. It's quite interesting because he he came from Familicão, Pedro Gonçalves, and there was another player at Familicão called Diogo Gonçalves. Uh, no relations, they've got the same surname. But uh, Diogo Gonçalves was playing as a winger and he got bought by Benfica uh, in the close season. And I think if you'd ask most people in the close season, you know, who would do better or who will have a bigger impact, uh, I think, honestly, uh, most people will probably have said Diogo Gonçalves because he was really, uh, you know, he really looked good last season. He really kind of caught the eye a bit more than Pedro Gonçalves. He's more, you know, uh, Diogo Gonçalves a flying winger. Uh, so he kind of, you know, he stands out a little bit more than Pedro Gonçalves, who's more of a number 10, uh, not very fast, just really skillful. Uh, but, you know, a, a mid-sized club or quite a small club, to be honest, last season, you know, he did very well. I think he scored about eight goals, but perhaps, you know, didn't really, uh, didn't shine like he is this season and people weren't expecting him to explode the way he did. But yeah, he's, uh, he's really just, you know, absolutely taken the league by storm. And uh, it's quite funny that uh, Diogo Gonçalves has actually had a real tough time trying to to break into Benfica's team. He's been converted in the meanwhile to a right back and he's actually doing quite well now. But, uh, you know, there's no doubt about it. Out of the two Gonçalves, uh, seems like Sporting got, got the big one. As defending champions, why have Porto struggled so much this season? Yeah, good question. Again, I think... I think if you if you actually have a look at their record and Benfica's record, you know it is a little bit worse than uh, than the kind of the average where they'd be at this point of the season. But it seems a lot worse than it is. Uh, be- why? Because Sporting have just had an absolutely phenomenal season. You know, Sporting have uh, in twenty three games they've won nineteen and drawn four. You know, that's that's it's their best season ever in their whole history. You know, and. Even, uh, of course, we're used to the big clubs in Portugal, especially Benfica and Porto in recent seasons, to winning, you know, the vast majority of their games. But even those two, you know, to to get to this stage of the season uh, with this kind of record would be, you know, very, very unusual. Uh, they, they have, I think, in the last 20 years or so, I think, sporting Porto have done it 
once and or twice maybe and Benfica done it once going through the whole season and beaten but it is very very unusual uh you know even so and uh and so I think that makes it look a bit worse than they have been but that said yeah that said it's also fair to say that they you know they are they haven't been at the level that they normally are uh Benfica have put the blame firmly on uh, COVID-19. They were really badly affected at one stage. I think they had 10 players out simultaneously. Uh, and so the coach, Jorge Jesus, has, has claimed that, you know, that's just hasn't been, they haven't been able to get going really, even in terms of training. And, uh, you know, he's a very uh, intense coach in terms of his uh, his training systems and he said that that's what's uh, that's kind of the excuses put forward to why Benfica aren't performing as well as they should be as for Porto uh, like I said in a normal season they'd be you know right up there and perhaps even top and of course they've done incredibly well in the Champions League and so uh, you couldn't really say that they've had a, a poor season. If you look at how they're performing in the Champions League, you know, and they're just having one of their best seasons for, for years, you know, and, the, you know, the amazing performance against Juventus, anyone who saw that, they thought, well, you know, this is a top team. But, yeah, they've just lacked consistency, really, in the, uh, you know, in the league itself and uh, perhaps a little bit of uh, firepower as well. Uh, you know, they've normally got, two or three strikers or two or three forwards that would be at this stage of the season have 10 or 15 goals uh, each and, you know, they really kind of blow away teams. They haven't really been doing that this season at all. They've got Med Remy, who I noted, who I mentioned before, the, uh, the Iranian striker. He's been a really good buy and he's been excellent and uh, he is their top scorer, I think. But uh, yeah, beyond that, they've got, uh, you know, three or four forward players who perhaps aren't quite up to the normal standards. Some of them are young players as well. So, uh, you know, perhaps they'll improve in the, in the coming years, but, but not quite at the same level as, uh, you know, you'd normally expect at Porto. Has the lack of European football allowed Sporting to get an edge over Benfica, Porto and Braga? Yeah, a lot of people have mentioned that. I'm not, I'm not 100% sold on that idea. I think... Uh, uh, why do I say that? Because, for instance, at Christmas time, <clears throat> so that was in, in early January, I think at the turn of the year. So that was when Benfica and Sport and uh, Porto, of course, they played their <clears throat> Champions League games or Europa League games. Uh, that was when they were having to play every three days. And so that was the time where you'd think if Sporting had this big advantage, they would have created you know, a big gap. Now, at that stage, Sporting were top of the league, but they were top of the league by, I think, if memory serves me right, maybe a couple of points or four points at the most. They just uh, they had a very slight lead against uh, you know the, the, their two main rivals, you could say. Uh, and even Braga, if we bring Braga into the question, it's the same situation because, of course, they were in the Europa League. Uh, now, Sporting really started to pull away and really created this big gap in January and February. In January and February, well, Sporting's... Uh, Sporting's record this season, this year, this calendar year, has been just phenomenal. They've uh, they've won every game in the league apart from Porto, uh, and I think Rio Ave at home as well. Yeah, so they've drawn two, won every ever single one. Uh, in the meantime, uh, both Benfica and and Porto, especially, they've they've dropped a lot of points. They've they've drawn a lot of games that you'd normally expect them to win, and. But this is at a time when there was no European football. And, you know, this was 
I'm talking about January and February, even before the Champions League started up again and the Europa League started up again. So I'm not 100% sure uh, that, you know, we can we can put so much stall in that argument. I suppose you could say, okay, sporting, uh, if they were playing European football, perhaps they're, you know, their first few months of the season, they wouldn't have, uh, you know, had such an impressive record where again, they, you know, they didn't, they didn't lose at all. Perhaps they would have lost one or two points. So yeah, it is a factor. I think it's fair to say it is a factor, but I wouldn't say it's such a major factor as some people make out. How much did the Champions League defeat affect Benfica? Did it set the tone for the rest of their season? Psychologically, I think it was a huge blow. And of course, financially as well, it was a huge blow. And they sold uh, Ruben Diaz almost immediately afterwards. And uh, perhaps if they had gone through and they got into the Champions League, they wouldn't have had to do that because, you know, it was suddenly they had this big hole in their finances. And so... I think psychologically, yeah, it was a big blow. It's quite strange because Benfica, they lost that game against Pauk. Of course, it was just one leg. And so it's a bit of a dangerous uh, scenario. And it was that they actually had to play it away uh, in Greece. So they ended up losing it. uh, And, you know, it was a disaster for Benfica in terms of finances. But then they kind of recovered straight away. And then, uh, for instance, they were top. They were top of the league after the first uh, month or two. They, uh, you could argue they played their best football of the season. Immediately after that, they, I think they reeled off five or six wins uh, straight on the on the bounce and, uh, you know, put in some really good performances. I remember one game especially, they they smashed Family Cal uh, away 5-0, which, uh, you know, they're, they're struggling this season for Milikal, but they're it's, nobody really managed to do, to, do that, to do that to them. Usually, you know, they're they're not such a weak team, and uh, and so like I said at the start, Benfica were big favourites to win the league, and even though they'd lost to Pauk, it looked like they, you know, they they would be, you know, probably the, the team to catch at the top, but then it just kind of uh, all fell apart a little bit, and a lot of people they do point back to that, uh, you know, to that power game. And they say, uh, you know, in terms of even the, the whole project, as it were, bringing back Georges, spending all this money, you know, it was almost, uh, it, they, they almost had a duty or a responsibility or whatever word you want to use or a obligation to, to win the league. And, uh, you know, when things started going wrong, it really, the pressure started heaping on them very, very quickly. And they just haven't been able to to turn it around. You know, only recently, maybe the last two or three games is where they're, they're only starting to show some form again. So yeah, that was. Uh, I think it it did affect them in in terms of their emotional stability, uh, maybe more than in terms of their actual form. Uh, you know, in the wake of that game. How important is it for Portuguese football that Sporting break the Porto Benfica duopoly in the league? No, I think uh, I think it is important because obviously, if you have three strong teams, you know, year after year, it, it, it's got to be better for the league than uh, three or four. I suppose we've got to really include Braga because they've been so impressive in recent seasons. If you've got four very strong teams, then uh, you know, in theory, that's going to help the league. That will definitely help the competitiveness, you know, when they play against each other, that will, you know, uh, give them more testing challenges, which will 
you know, put them in good stead when they and when they come up against uh, foreign opposition uh, in European competition. Uh, in terms of just the interest of you know the the Portuguese league, without a doubt, you know, sporting, it, it just gets a bit boring with uh, you know Benfica and Porto slugging it out year after year. It's just like uh, I suppose like you know. Spain before Atletico were good. You know, it's just uh, uh, when, when when there's only two teams that can win the league, that just kind of saps the interest out of it. And uh, yeah, in terms of competitiveness, it's it's not a good thing. Yeah, so no doubt about it. You know, a strong sporting, uh, strong sporting will will be excellent use, I think, for the for the league, and uh, yeah, make it make it much more interesting, of course. That's all we've got today on Team Geist. Many thanks to Tom for discussing sporting season with us. Many thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in.